Hello and welcome to the China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. Every week, we look at a few stories you may have seen about China and some you may not have. We try to explain what's going on with the world's most populous country, how we got here, and what is to be done. I'm Wilson Shirley, media fellow at the China Center, and I'm joined by Miles Yu, the center's director. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, and it's the second episode of The China Insider. We got a lot of great, helpful feedback last week, and we're going to use it. We also hope that you'll rate and review to let us know how we're doing. So let's dive in. We have three items to discuss in our second podcast. First, protests, this time not in Shanghai, but outside of Apple's headquarters in Silicon Valley. Then, the future of zero COVID and lockdowns in China. And finally, what Miles is calling the politics of death in the People's Republic in light of last Tuesday's nationwide funeral for former General Secretary Jiang Zemin. And with that, Miles, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Wilson. Miles, last week we talked about pro-freedom protests in China, but there were also solidarity protests in the United States, including one outside of Apple's headquarters in Cupertino, California, where two Chinese pro-democracy activists went on hunger strike. So I want to read you a little bit of the statement they gave saying why they went on hunger strike. They said, this strike is inspired by the white paper revolution. We have been waiting for this opportunity for 33 years after the Tiananmen massacre. They continued that they were doing it to, quote, improve worker conditions at the Foxconn facility, stop censoring the Chinese app store, restore airdrop functions on iPhones in China, and condemn the mass incarceration of Uyghurs. It's worth mentioning that last Friday was also Uyghur Genocide Recognition Day. So with all of that, why Apple and what what do you make of that statement? Well, China's tyranny over its people has uh, strengthened and has deepened, partly because the Chinese government is able to uh, use uh, modern surveillance technology to have an all-weather surveillance state over virtually everybody in China. And uh, that capability is enabled by a lot of Western technology and uh, uh, information, telecommunication firms. Apple is one of the most important and most influential. So in this case, you might say the protesters seem to say Apple is complicit in CCP's surveillance totalitarianism. And this is actually uh, pretty true because uh, Apple is not only uh, in cahoots with the Chinese government exploiting the uh, workers um, in iPhone City, for example, in China. Apple actually has been sort of in complete willing cooperation with the Chinese government. For example, all iPhone has this cap- uh, capability called AirDrop. The only country where AirDrop is not available, iPhones in China. And also, uh, in compliance with Chinese government demands, all the iPhones in China, there is no VPN app apps. So VPN is a very effective weapon for citizens in China to do secure communication with outside of China. Apple uh, willingly complies with the Chinese government in that demand. And for example, all iPhones, Apple sold to Chinese customers, their cloud data has to be stored inside China, in China's data center. In other words, the Chinese Communist Party has total and complete access to Apple's cloud data centers in China. Now, about 85% of all iPhones made in the world, or sold for the, in the world, are made in one giant city, uh, in Zhenzhou, uh, Henan. That's where the Foxconn protest 
and uh, took place. And uh, they're trying very best to hide its uh, misdeeds in China. So the two protesters in Cupertino, California, uh, wanted to raise uh, global awareness to oppose complicity with the Chinese government. So let's talk a little bit more about that Foxconn uh, facility. It came up last week during our conversation, and the images out of there are pretty extraordinary. People trying to hop over fences. It employs a couple hundred thousand people in the same area. You described it as Apple City a second ago. So dive into a little bit more because I think it's really important for people to understand that that is where the iPhones, a lot of the uh, Apple products that we all use in our daily lives. I joked about wanting some for Christmas uh, in our last episode. That's where they come from. So what is that place like? Well, that place basically it was a living hill for, for several weeks because the Chinese government ordered the tens of thousands of people working in that iPhone city, lockdown, in the city, in the dormitory. They're not allowed to go, go out. No food, no water, no medicine. And with the sudden death of eight women in one dormitory, and everybody freaked out. So they tried to leave, but they were not, not allowed because the police are outside guarding them. Uh, they were like a, uh, a crow into like a, like a gigantic concentration camp. So people couldn't take it anymore. So tens of thousands of people risked their lives breaking the police line and just walk. They walked hundreds of miles going home. So this is the, the dramatic pictures and videos we saw a few weeks back. So I want to talk a little bit about what Apple plans to do in China, because there's been some news over the last couple of weeks. Apple has said that it plans to move a lot of its operations out of China to places like India and Vietnam. And I want to read you a line uh, out of a Wall Street Journal editorial on the subject that said, the news that Apple plans to move much of its iPhone supply chains out of China is the most important signal to date that Western CEOs are wising up about business risks in the People's Republic. So this is a two-part question. One, how serious is this move? And two, what do you think other Western CEOs will make of it? I don't think it's really sincere that much because Apple's addiction to China is so incurable at this moment. Uh, yes, it announced it's going to move part of its supply chain, its manufacturing capability out of China. But, you know, uh, uh, the capacities in countries like Vietnam and Indonesia are very limited. They could move probably 5% up to 10% maximum of its entire uh, manufacturing capability out of China. So I think this is uh, uh, partly because they have no choice because most of the factories, as I said, the plant in Henan, Zhengzhou, that uh, made 80% of all iPhones were kind of shut down right now during COVID lockdowns. But now lockdowns were eased right now. So maybe Apple will go back. Another thing, of course, there is also this PR side of this Apple. They say, oh, we're moving, China, we're moving out of China as if to alleviate its culpability and, uh, and the complicity in the China's surveillance totalitarianism. Um, I don't, I'm not entirely convinced by that. The next subject that we're going to talk about is uh, what a lot of people are saying is the end of zero COVID in China. This was one of the things that was most devastating at the Foxconn uh, facility. And I want to read you two headlines that I saw and get your reaction. The first one is China effectively abandoned zero COVID policy. And the second one is zero COVID, once ubiquitous, vanishes in China's messy pivot. So is zero COVID over in China? Well, it's not entirely over. I mean, this is, uh, uh, Xi Jinping had no choice. He was forced to do so. Um, um, he basically capitulated and ordered the nationwide ease of lockdowns. And uh, first of all, this is because of a massive protest 
across the nation. So uh, if he doesn't do something and uh, he's going to uh, face a severe political and region survival consequence. Another reason I think is uh, very few people have pointed out is actually is because of China's collapsing economy due to draconian COVID lockdowns. The economy is, is in shambles right now. November 11th is China's largest consumer uh, purchase day. It's called double 11. This year's sales volume dropped by 42%. And most of China's uh, biggest companies like uh, Alibaba, like Tencent, their stocks suffer miserably. They have all lost volumes uh, more than half of what it was a year ago before the, uh, uh, the nationwide lockdowns. As you can imagine, there's also massive foreign companies exodus. Uh, you know, people always say China is the world factory, but the largest workshop of that factory is a city called Dongguan, which is uh, just uh, north of Hong Kong inside the Chinese uh, Guangdong province. I mean, in Dongguan alone, in last year, due, due to lockdowns, companies have basically evacuated outside of China, foreign companies. The companies include Sanyo, Panasonic, Sony, Nokia, Canon, Epson, Cisco. And so, of course, on top of that, just before COVID, the Walmart has completely uh, uh, moved out of uh, its supply chain out of China. So that's a pretty big deal. Now, because of COVID lockdown, this year's Christmas orders to China has dropped by about 40%. Think about that. So the estimated loss in GDP due to the COVID lockdown is estimated at $3 trillion. That's pretty big deal. That is hugely significant. Back to the, the, the forced uh, sort of ease, Xi Jinping's order, it, the, the about face is so sudden, it has destroyed people's confidence and trust in the Chinese government um, uh, completely. Now, Xi Jinping started this draconian COVID lockdowns, zero COVID policy, in hope to buttress CCP's reputation and ability to handle COVID. Uh, but it ended up looking ridiculous and stupid and silly and tyrannical. So people want to get away. Each day, China's largest uh, internet company is Tencent. Tencent each day publish uh, through its WeChat uh, app a daily word search index, one of the most searched words uh, of that day. On the day after Xi Jinping ordered the ease of the lockdown, the most searched word in all of China was Yimin, immigration. Really? In English. Because everybody just fed up with, with, with the government and they all try to figure out what's the best way to get out of China. It also shows the hubris of the Chinese Communist Party has a severe limits because it was completely anti-nature, anti-science, and anti-rationality. I think that's definitely true. And it's also the reopening, such as it is, has been inconsistent across China, more so in some cities than others. They reopened Disneyland Shanghai, then they closed it down again because of COVID. And I want to get into a little bit of how you described the ridiculousness of the zero COVID policies. Can you give us some examples of what life has been like in China over the last three years? Obviously, the West has had its own version of lockdowns. But what was life like and what were some of the most ridiculous things that, that you saw going on during zero COVID? Well, you see, uh, um, like in most totalitarian regimes uh, in China, what's normalcy is really bizarre world to the rest of the world. Hundreds of millions of people in China, uh, like myself, I was born and raised in China. When we went through a cultural revolution, when my parents describing to me 
uh, about uh, the uh, Great Leap Forward when Mao uh, uh, did all those ridiculous things. And people thought that was great. That was normal. That's what, you know, communist uh, aspiration should be. But then, of course, with that kind of mentality, if, we, uh, if, if you live in China and, and uh, you realize the Chinese Communist Party leadership really has no clue what is considered commonsensical, what is considered normal. For example, the entire COVID zero lockdown is based upon the idea that the Chinese Communist Party is so awesome, so superior, so capable, it could basically eradicate every single COVID infection. Think about that. They believe that very firmly. So that's why life in China, if you're an ordinary person, uh, you will basically mean nothing because the party always has grand vision for the nation because they control political power. So China is a country of irony and complete uh, absence of self-awareness in what it's doing. So turning to another previous Chinese leader who, again, we talked about a little bit last week, but since then, his funeral happened, Zhang Zemin. So to give a little bit more context around who Zhang Zemin was, he was 96 years old when he died. He was educated in the Soviet Union, as he said. He was, as you said, he was general secretary from 1989, right after Tiananmen, till 2002, head of the Central Military Commission until 2004. And what he did during his time was he championed tech giants like Huawei. He brought in more investment. He suppressed the Falun Gong, Tibetans, Uyghurs. He put Communist Party cells in private businesses. And he also significantly brought China into the WTO. So with all of that, you described his funeral to me as, quote, an over-the-top extravaganza. What happened at the funeral and why does it matter? Well, Jiang Zemin is a very complicated figure. I mean, this is a uh, diehard communist who believe in the ultimate triumph of socialism over capitalism. He rose uh, uh, through the ranks and to become supreme leader of China after he successfully suppressed uh, the students' uprising in Shanghai in the 1989. He died uh, on November. Uh, well, his death was announced on November 30th, uh, but people speculated that. Um, his death actually took place about two weeks before that. But the whole nation was really ordered to stop going on its usual business by Xi Jinping. And uh, he, he put up the gigantic funeral service. And all entertainment programs, for example, on national TV's main channel were canceled for seven days. All forms of entertainment programs for the whole nation was ordered to be canceled on the day of John's funeral. No singing, no dancing, no wedding, and no banquet, and so and so on. No video games online either. I know. On December 6th in Shanghai, on the day of his funeral, Xi Jinping ordered all stock trading and even World Cup soccer broadcasting temporarily stopped for the funeral. And she gave the longest eulogy uh, in CCP history for Jiang, twice as long as the eulogy given for Mao uh, in 1976. This is always very, very surreal. Because Jiang Zemin is not, in the Chinese Communist Party's leadership's pantheon, a, a great leader deserved this much of hoopla. In the minds of a lot of Chinese, Jiang Zemin actually was a buffoon and a clown. And Xi Jinping turned Jiang Zemin into a paragon of communist virtues and ideological scent. It's totally bizarre. It's bizarre because I think Xi Jinping, provo- uh, this, this death of Jiang uh, normally provide uh, him with some kind of a, a escape from his own predicaments. That's definitely right. Deaths in China of senior leaders normally 
has some uh, interesting, uh, a significant uh, meaning. Normally, it means either the political coup or an impetus for massive protests, right? For example, in 1976, you have two deaths. One is the death of Mao, another one is the death of Premier Zhou Enlai. Each one of them, the death of Mao uh, was a prelude to a coup, ultimately paved way to Deng Xiaoping's rise to power two years later. And the death of Premier Zhou, of course, triggered a, 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 a rare public protest in Tiananmen Square. This is a part of the internal party power struggle. And of course, the most fa famous death took place on April 15th, 1989. Uh, the death of a, a former Chinese Communist Party uh, Secretary General Hu Yaobang. Uh, not death triggered really the Tiananmen protest, uh, which led to the massacre in 1989. Xi Jinping, I think, is profoundly worried about the death of Jiang Zemin being used by his political enemies within the CCP to fan public pro-Jiang Zemin sentiment as a way to channel their anger toward Xi Jinping himself. By lionizing Jiang Zemin, a guy who really doesn't deserve this much, this much credit and, and loud praise, to neutralize pro-Jiang Zemin factions inside the CCP. You know, the mention of Tiananmen is absolutely a taboo in China. But Xi Jinping needs a very long eulogy. He actually mentioned the 1989 Tiananmen movement, which is very rare. But of course, he mentioned this in the context of praising Jiang Zemin for standing firm with the Chinese Communist Party, for brilliantly suppressing the, the movement from spreading from Shanghai. And I think this kind of a, a preemptive action on part of Xi is also evidenced by the public showing of Hu Jintao, the very man Xi Jinping had just reputationally destroyed in the 20th Party Congress uh, a few weeks before. By so doing, I think he's tried to sort of indicate that he tried to consolidate uh, uh, the party by show well, we're all together, the Kumbaya moving forward under my leadership. You mentioned the death of previous uh, leaders of the CCP, and I wanted to ask you about uh, Mao's death in 1976. I've read that Mao wanted to be cremated, but was in fact embalmed and then put into a tomb that they constructed for him. So why did that happen? And why is it Lenin is also embalmed? So why is it that death is so political, so important, bodies are put on, displayed in, on display in communist regimes? It shows the ideological consistency of a very symbolic uh, regime. And I think the fact that uh, Mao's uh, body is still displayed in public in Tiananmen Square, in the nerve center of all Chinese politics, is absolutely an abomination. And this was the man responsible for the death of at least 70 million Chinese citizens. The, the number one mass murderer in human history, surpassing even Hitler and Stalin. And uh, this guy's image is still printed uh, in Chinese money. People always say, you know, Xi Jinping is different from Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping is different from, from Mao, and there were uh, some kind of uh, mystical factions of reformers inside the party um, against uh, the hardliners. Those were all nonsense because uh, deep inside, they may have a different approach to governance, but their ultimate purpose is one and only, that is to preserve the longevity and stability of the Chinese Communist Party's power monopoly, pure and simple. And that's certainly Xi Jinping's mission today and going forward, as we've seen throughout his time in power. There's no question about that. Thanks so much, Miles. Uh, we've gone over a lot today, and I'm looking forward to the next episode of the China Insider with you. Great. Looking forward to it, too.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible. Follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on The China Insider.